After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We've got another great show for you today as part of our scout series. We are very pleased to be joined by Dodgers area scout Marty Lamb. Marty is somewhat of a legend in the scouting community. He has signed 12 big leaguers in his long career, including Chad Billingsley, A.J. Ellis, Walker Bueller, Will Smith. He was the signing scout for Bobby Miller, the Dodgers first rounder last year. He's also signed some guys lower in the draft who have become good big leaguers, Matt Beatty and Caleb Ferguson, as well as guys like Corey Wade and Eric Stoltz in years past. Really just a tremendous scout and someone who is revered by his colleagues. And we are very, very honored to have him on the show today. We're bringing Marty on because he has had three players he signed make their big league debuts this year. Dodgers outfielder Luke Rayleigh, Marlins reliever Zach Pop, and Rockies reliever Jordan Sheffield. He signed all three of them for the Dodgers. Zach Pop was traded to the Orioles as part of the Manny Machado deal and taken the Rule 5 draft this year, while Sheffield was taken from the Dodgers directly in the Rule 5 draft this year as well. We're very, very pleased to be joined by Marty from his home in Nicholasville, Kentucky. Marty, I have to ask you, what's your secret? (laughs) I guess the secret's working for a good organization. You know, I mean, we've got a bunch of good people and We've had, I've been lucky enough, you know, with Ed Creech and Logan White, Tim Hallgren, and now Billy um, Gasparino, and then all the people underneath them. Um, You know, it's just worked out. And then, you know, the player development guys that once they get them and the work that they've done with them. So I don't know, I've enjoyed working with the Dodgers and, you know, we've just got a bunch of good people that try to, we're all working for the same goal. That goal obviously is to win a World Series championship. You've been with the organization since 1999. So you've seen this team get to the playoffs a bunch of times, come up a little short. What was it like for you to finally see the team win the World Series last year? Yeah, that was a neat, you know, I mean, when you first signed up with the Dodgers, you thought, oh yeah, you know, (laughs) and then to go 22 or 23 years, whatever it was, um, it seemed like a long time coming. So it was exciting. Absolutely. So I want to jump into your background a little bit before we talk about the guys you signed. How did you get into scouting and and latch on with the Dodgers ultimately? Right. Um, I had coached in college for uh, 10 years. I was started out at Northern Colorado and then I was able to 
to uh, go as a graduate assistant at Mississippi State with Coach Polk. And, you know, that was a tremendous opportunity there. I had a high school job for a year and a half in Bay Springs, Mississippi. Um, then I went on to Southern Miss for three years and then Texas Tech for three years. And um, from Texas Tech, then I ended up with the, with the Dodger job. Um, it was, uh, I tried a couple other clubs and now looking back, tried to get, I had interviews, but just didn't get jobs. But now looking back, I'm like, you know, I'm sure glad that it was the Dodgers that I ended up getting this job with. And we had never been in this area, really, per se, because um, I was going from Tech. I'd grown up in Colorado, and I was we were moving from Texas to uh, to this area. And they told me, hey, you can live in Cincinnati or Lexington. And we decided to, to go in Lexington. And... Um, super glad that we did you know it's been a great uh, move for us and for our family and we sort of call this home now yeah absolutely how did you get the Dodgers job specifically did you have a connection who hired you what was that process like um it was sort of a strange deal because uh it so that whole group Kevin Malone Ed Creech they had all come in um, with the Dodgers and my job didn't open up until like February. I think I started on February the 8th of 99. They had a major league scout or a, the guy that was doing my area ended up going to uh, be a major league scout. His name was Carl Lowenstein and still a wonderful friend and a wonderful man and a wonderful mentor. And he sort of took me under my wing and he had, he had helped a lot of guys in this area for a long time. And so when I got here, they had to help me, you know, I mean, cause he had done so much for them. So, um, I, he went to the pro side. So all of a sudden they've got this job open up and, um, I ended ended up interviewing with Ed Creech and Jimmy Lester and um, uh, sort of a funny side to that. I had grown up in Colorado. Creech had played in Denver with the Denver Bears. I had an old baseball that I had gotten signed and his name was on it. He had signed a ball for me when I was a kid. Nice. So I brought it to the interview thinking, oh, this might you know help things a little bit. And so I flip him the ball and Jimmy's in there as well. And, uh, you know, we start laughing about it. And then Jimmy says, well, if you thought he was a prospect, I don't know if we need to hire you. <laughs> sort of, you know, it was sort of an icebreaker, you know, type of deal. And, and uh, but the other thing is they ended up offering the job to another person. Uh, it was a coach at University of Kentucky and Jan Weisberg he turned it down because he wanted to stay in college. And then when, once he turned it down, then I got it. So sort of, you know, sort of how everything works was a little strange. Um, but I ended up, I think I, we had coached or I'd coached maybe a uh, one weekend series, maybe at Texas tech. And, and then they offered me the job. So all of a sudden I'm on my way and now I'm a Dodger scout. 
the Dodgers are certainly glad to uh, have you as part of their scouting staff. As we mentioned, without Walker Buehler and Will Smith, this team doesn't win a World Series, and you were the signing scout who brought them into the organization, as well as some other very, very, very decorated major leaguers. I do have to ask, you've seen scouting change a lot since the time you began in 1999 to now. What would you say are the biggest changes since you've been in the scouting role? Well, um, one, a cell phone. You know, when we started, <laughs> really, we, I mean, you had a cell phone, but it was like 500 minutes on it, and those went away, in, you know, in like a week, and then you had, you know, three more weeks of, you know, with no minutes. Um, you know, when when I started, I can remember driving home from Nashville, and I had a spot in Bardstown, Kentucky, and you'd go to the convenience store, and you'd roll down your window, and there'd be the payphone there, and you'd have to, you know, check your messages. You'd have to call for pitching rotations and all that kind of stuff, and and you know, sort of try to set up your week from there. So. I mean, now that's been a huge, you know, help really, you know, all the time that you spent because you used to have to go and check your messages like three times a day. So if you left and then sort of midday, if you were driving or whatever, you're supposed to pull over, go to a payphone, check your messages, you know, in case there was something urgent and then you could check them again that night. So that was, you know, a real big thing that had changed, but, um, and then, you know, obviously now with a lot of the analytics type stuff, you know, that's been a big difference, you know, a, a big push and a big difference in in some of the stuff that, that goes on. I don't know from for us as much. Um, I mean, we use it and we have guys that are knocking it out. And, and But I think we're a little bit still more pure scouting than, than – um, a lot of them, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. There's obviously been a push for analytics, and in some cases that has sadly meant that a lot of scouts have lost their jobs. But I keep going back to the two teams that a lot of people identify as the most analytically inclined, the Dodgers and the Rays, also have two of the largest scouting staffs in all of baseball. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's funny, too, is like if you go and look at our staff, I mean, Billy's done a great job of hiring people. And I mean, we, we got a, quite a few old guys, you, you know what I mean? I mean, and it's not just a bunch of younger kids. Um, and, and, and obviously I was young when I started or, you know, fairly young. Um, but I can remember when I first went in that room, I mean, it was like intimidating. You know, you had all these old Dodger guys that had been around for a long time. I mean, you had uh, Bill Pleiss and Hank Jones had been st- at that time still had been there a long time. You had Lon Joyce, um, you had Glenn Van Proyen, um, Dale McReynolds, uh, I mean, uh, Mike Hankins, all these guys had been there for a long time. So here I'm this young pup walking in and these, you know, legends and f- famous guys, you know, Gib Bode had been there forever. And, you know, it was a little daunting when I first started. Um, so we've always sort of I don't know. It's sort of continued that way of, you know, we've got veteran guys and we've got young, <clears throat> younger ones sprinkled in, but there's still a lot of veteran presence out there for us. Has it hit you yet that you're now the veteran guy that the young pups walk <laughs> in and go, Oh my gosh, Marty Lamb. 
Uh, I don't know if this is story time, but a couple of years ago, I ran into a guy and he said, hey, do you know Joe Campbell? And I said, yeah, I knew Joe Campbell. And Joe Campbell was a, a Dodger scout, 25 years. He's passed away quite a few years now. And I said, yeah, I knew Mr. Joe, you know, great man, you know, this and that. And I said, you know, he was one of those old Dodger guys, been there 25 years and, you know, this and that. And then it hit me like the next day I went, shoot, I'm that guy now. They're going to be talking about me like that, you know. So um, we've always had – I've had a lot of good people um, and and a lot of good veteran guys that you could go to with questions and ask them, and how do you do this or how do you do that or what about this or I've got this player. Here's what I'm seeing. What do you think? Or just the professionalism. I mean, and I think that's what we're lacking some at this point with some of the younger ones because they don't totally get it or nobody's talked to them. But when you talk about Hank Jones and Lon Joyce, that I would watch how they did things and how professional they were and how how good their name, or and Carl Lowenstein, how good their name was out in the community, the scouting community, the area. I still have people asking me about Carl to this day. Hey, how's Carl doing? You know, and and so just the professionalism that they taught me um, coming up, you know, you just try to carry that on. In terms of player evaluation, again, your track record is sparkling. What were some of the biggest things they taught you that you've taken forward in your career, even to this day? I can always remember Carl used to tell me, plus is play. You know, and at first I heard it, but I didn't totally, I heard it, but I guess it didn't totally sink in, you know, and, you know, I was driving one time and I had done pro coverage. I did big league coverage and it just sort of hit me upside the face. And I'm like, wait a minute, the guys that are like the best players, they got more pluses and the guys that don't play as much you know, or our utility guys or whatever, they might have a plus or a couple pluses, but that's, you know, so it's just sort of, I mean, it's very simple, you know, but it, it like hit me in the face, like, ah, I get it more now, you know, I mean, it was like this aha moment that the light had been turned on. Um, so I think that probably was one of the biggest things that I took away from those guys. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like if you look through your list of players that you signed, you can see that obviously Walker Bueller and Bobby Miller with their fastballs, those are definitely pluses and, and probably more. Um, you know, Will Smith, his his defense and now his power, there's pluses. But what's interesting is even some of the guys that are lower down you've drafted, you see it, Luke Rayleigh, some people felt has had plus power. Zach Pop, definitely a plus sinker. Is that something that you hunt for? Obviously in the early rounds, but even the later round guys that you've drafted, there's pluses on the card. Yes, yeah. And and one of the thing with one of the things I guess I'm most proud of all these guys is they've all had plus makeup. You know, I mean, from Eric Stoltz and Corey Wade and AJ and Chad Billingsley and and Brian Morris, they've all been plus makeup guys, along with those guys you were mentioning. Um, So they had their pluses. Some of them had more than others, but they all had plus makeup and just this sort of competitiveness and work ethic and, and, 
Billingsley built a mound. He was supposed to be, he was in Vero, bought a house in Vero his first year out, bought a house in Vero. It's like February. I call him, hey, how's it going? Everything's good. I can't go to Vero Beach to work out. I said, well, how come? Well, I hadn't got my physical fast yet or whatever. And I'm thinking, this don't make sense. He's living there. And I called Logan afterwards and I'm saying, and, and we took care of it. But he said, I'm working at a gym, working out at a gym, and I've built a mound in my backyard and I'm throwing into a net. And that was a first rounder, you know, and you're like, this makeup is, you know, if that's what he figured he needed to do to, to, to make it and to improve, that's what he did. You know, so there's stuff like that all along. Absolutely. So you've had a lot of guys make the big leagues before. You had three guys make their debuts this year. Luke Rayleigh, Zach Pop, Jordan Sheffield. I have to ask, does the excitement ever dim at all? Or is it still just like the first one when these guys make it? No, it's exciting. You know, I, I think the biggest thing is you're so excited for the kids, you know, and, and their dream had come true. You know, and th for me, that's the biggest thing is, you know, I, I text him and just say, hey, you know, I'm proud for you. And, you know, you made it and you've, you've gotten there because of your work and, you know, all those things tied in together along with, you know, the type of athlete and player you are. And that's probably the biggest thing I, I just, you know, you see Rayleigh getting his first hit and he's smiling from ear to ear at, you know, and those things are like, that's pretty cool, you know. So I want to dive in with you on what you saw in all three of these guys in college. At first, we're going to take a quick break. And we're back with Marty Lamb. All right, Marty. So the three guys who you signed that have made their big league debuts this year, I actually want to start with Luke Rayleigh. Luke was a seventh round pick in 2016 out of Division II Lake Erie College. And it was kind of funny. My first interactions with Luke were when he was at Rancho Cucamonga the following year. I'd gone in to do some coverage of the Dodger system. And the thing I remember most about him was he was taking BP sleeveless with these massive biceps, showing them off for the world and hitting some tanks. And this was a very, very talented Rancho Cucamonga team. Will Smith was on that team. Walker Bueller was on the team earlier in the year. DJ Peters was on the team. This was a team with a lot of prospect guys. And he always stood out, not just for his biceps and BP, but even his gameplay. He hit for average. He hit for power. He actually had some speed. He had 11 triples that year. It was 9 for 10 on stolen bases. Played good defense. And he was someone I kind of kept in the back of my mind of, this is a guy who can play, even though he's not a big name. And now we've seen him reach the majors. What did you see out of him at Lake Erie? It's a cool story. Um, I had done Vanderbilt for a couple – well – we had seen Rayleigh at a uh, Ohio small school showcase in the fall, but he was going to have to have knee surgery. So the way he showed at that showcase wasn't a true measure. You know, he showed up and whatever, but he didn't really, you know, I don't think he ran. He didn't see really the raw power because of his legs um, and that kind of thing. So anyhow, Vanderbilt's playing, you know, for the weekend, I get him Friday, Saturday, and Lake Erie is in Nashville playing. And so I thought, well, I'll shoot over there, you know, really sort of thinking 
I'll shoot over there. I'll be done quick. And I'm on my way, you know, back North and, um, talk to the coach. He tells us, you know, what a great kid he is and this and that. Well, they were hitting in the cages. And so we go over as me and John Burden with the angels and we've gone over and he's hitting in the cage. And I'm like, this is a little different than I remember, you know, in the fall. And he was a big dude, man. I mean, I don't know. It's like 6'4", 220 or something like that. I mean, big and strong. And he starts swinging that bat in the cage. And I'm like, wow, this is a little bit different. So he finishes up his BP. Well, he comes outside the cage and comes over to John and I and introduces himself. And it was like, that doesn't normally happen. You know what I mean? Like, and so sort of the makeup, the character of the kid, the confidence of the kid, you know, it's like, wow, this is pretty interesting. We ended up talking and, you know, you could shake his hand and see how big his hand was and that kind of thing. And he ended up coming over. He talked for 10 minutes probably, you know, and told us, you know, his background. And I think he was a special ed major, you know, to teach special ed kids and, and his parents owned a, uh, Christmas tree farm and he'd work that and you know it's just sort of wholesome country strong type kid and then he gets in the game and uh, he, he fights the left-hander that was you know for luckily he wasn't just lobbing in there it was like 88 or something and I think he went oppo jack the first at bat grounded out, run average, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, this is like different than I that we saw before. And uh, so I believe we got a double header. And um, I called John Atkins, my cross checker on the way home. And I'm like, I got to see this one more time, make sure, you know, I know what I think I just saw, and that I wasn't smoking marijuana or something you know like let me see it one more time and make sure I wasn't not that I smoked marijuana but um you know it's like let me make sure again and I went and saw him again it was the same thing and I was like I'm good you know I mean it's body it's athlete you know strength you know it's a good swing the ball came off his bat he ran you know he showed you all the things that you wanted to see um he played center field um he played some first base or took uh, ground balls at first base as well so i mean you saw everything you wanted to see and then you know he dominated that competition you know and i mean if, if he would have hit you know 300 with just a few home runs or whatever then you might have been a little bit more leery but you know he dominated where he was playing so anyhow but it was a neat story that way we hear this in the draft every year. A lot of guys put up big numbers against Division II competition, and you're not sure how it's going to translate. What were some of the things you saw that convinced you that it would? Right. I thought the swing was good, um, and I thought there was plenty of bat speed, and it wasn't like he was swinging and missing or chasing pitches and that kind of thing. So just, I mean, he's plenty strong to swing a wood bat. Um, the swing worked. There's plenty of bat speed. And, you know, he stayed in the zone and it wasn't like he was up there chasing or whatever. So just sort of putting those together, you thought, this guy's got a chance to hit, you know, and he could use the whole field. Like I said, the first at bat, so his left left and he goes oppo, you know, the first at bat. So 
you know, you can hang in there versus left-hander and that kind of thing. Yeah, he uh, very clearly established he could hit professional pitching pretty much as soon as he got into the minors. I was hitting 290-plus with power almost every stop. Was traded to the Twins, was traded back to the Dodgers, made his debut this year, had his first hit pretty early on, and, and then had his first home run against the Padres in that 12-inning game the first time the two teams met this season. Did you get a chance to see his first hit or his first home run live? Um. I think I, I saw the the uh, the double live, I believe, and then I saw a replay of the home run. So, what was your reaction seeing that first hit, that double against Colorado on April fourteenth? Yeah, well, just like I said, the the smile on his face when he came into second base was, you know, that was priceless, really. Two other pitchers that you signed that have made their debut this year, Jordan Sheffield and Zach Pop, both guys with uh, some power arsenals, power arms, two kind of different pedigrees, if you will. Sheffield was a first rounder, uh, 36th overall in 2016 out of Vanderbilt. Pop was a little bit later, seventh rounder in 2017 out of Kentucky. So both major programs, but one was a first round big name guy. The other guy, a seventh round guy who didn't quite have the same pedigree. I actually want to start with Pop. He was another guy I saw at Ranch Cucamonga who, to be frank, I had never heard of him before. Then I saw him come out throwing 96 with power sink, and it was one of those who is this moments. And uh, was selected in the Rule 5 draft by the Marlins this year, made his debut with them. What did you see in Zach when he was at Kentucky? Um, you know, he hadn't pitched a ton at Kentucky. He pitched, you know, as a freshman some um, – both his freshman and sophomore, he'd logged some innings, not a ton. And then his junior year, I had looked back. I think he only pitched 20 innings that junior year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had some uh, elbow or uh, arm problems. And um, so he he really, you know, got limited opportunities or limited innings there. Um, but like you said, um, it was a big body, power arm, I mean, plus sink, you know. He'd hit the breaking ball, not all the time, you know, but he would flash it to you. And then, uh, you know, to go back to sort of what I was saying, you know, a lot of this and a lot of these guys in this area that we've taken lately or, or gotten – I've got a great cross checker. John Atkins, you know, my supervisor has done a tremendous job. And I think John with pop really pushed that one, you know, like he had seen it. We'd both seen it. And it was like, you know, if you can get this in the seventh round, you know, um, and then the other, the, the other part of that is once he got with our player development guys, they cleaned him up a little bit. And, and helped him a little bit and adjusted some things. And then it just was lights out. I mean, I forget that that one year in, in Rancho, you probably remember better than I do. I mean, it was like, he didn't give up any runs. I mean, it was dominant, you know? So with John pushing, you know, and helping there as well, and John helped on Rayleigh as well, you know? And that's what I'm saying is we all just work together, you know, and, and they've done a great job, but, and then the player development sort of tweak him a little bit and away he went, you know. 
Yeah, you mentioned that junior year at Kentucky. It was 20 and two-thirds innings, 20 strikeouts, 14 walks. I mean, he was kind of wild, didn't pitch right. that much. And you know, we talk about college relievers. It, it's you know, not a profile or pedigree that a lot of teams like. I mean, is it just a case where you see that stuff, you say, hey, seventh round, let's take a shot? Yeah, I think that's – and I'm with you. The college reliever is a little tricky. Um, but, you know, like we go back to, like we said earlier, it's a plus fastball and it's plus life. And then he would flash you, you know, uh, at least a solid slider, you know. So it was all there, you know. He's got to be able to throw it over the strike zone and, and and command it. But the stuff was there, no doubt. So I think we were more comfortable with that, you know. And then, um, you know, that he was healthy, at least at that point. And then um, – you know, that we'd get enough strikes out of him. But the player development people did a wonderful job with him as well. Yeah, he was on that 2018 Ranch Cucamonga team, which I also came out and saw a good bit of. And I remember coming out to a series and seeing Tony Gonsolin, Dean Kramer, and Dustin May start. And then Zach Pop comes out of the bullpen in 96 with power sink. It's like, this just isn't fair. And uh, <laughs> Pop was part of the trade that year to the Orioles for Manny Machado, him and Kramer. And it was one of those where I was like, yeah, I absolutely understand why the Orioles would want this guy, especially as, as a third or fourth piece in that deal, right. along with Yusniel Diaz and the like. Uh, again, got up to the majors this year as a rule five pick with the Marlins. We are seeing the bat missing stuff has nine strikeouts in seven and a third innings. It looks like I looked the other day, just curious, and it's like, I forget exactly, but by four outings that were pretty good, and then a couple rough ones, you know, so the numbers got a little skewed, I think, because of the rough ones, but he's had some pretty good outings, I think, so, you know, didn't I don't think he started pitching until he was like 17, had very limited innings, you know, some of those things also, so... Yeah, you're right. Looking back at it now, he's had five scoreless outings and two outings that kind of got away from him. So he's absolutely been fine and certainly a, a pretty impressive success story. And certainly one of those guys, along with Rayleigh, that I remember even seeing for myself, and there's something here. And then to get that out of two seventh rounders is certainly impressive. And then Jordan Sheffield is a different guy than these guys we've talked about. He was a big deal out of high school, was drafted out of high school by the Red Sox, went to Vanderbilt supplemental first round pick. What were some of the things you saw in Jordan Sheffield? You've scouted Vanderbilt extensively, drafted quite a few players out of there. And just how did you kind of assess Jordan at that time? Well, we had Jordan in high school as well, you know, and then he, he got hurt um, that senior year. Um, but it was always, I mean, both those kids, you know, like super good athletes, you know, I mean, Jordan, super athlete, super quick arm, and plus stuff. I mean, it was a plus fastball. I mean, there'd be times where you'd, where you'd see plus fastball, plus curveball, plus slider, you know, and a plus changeup, you know. And, I mean, it was, it was good stuff. And, you know, the, the old, um, you know, undersized right-handers, there's been some pretty good ones come out of Vanderbilt, you know, um, that you sort of, you know, Sonny sort of slapped that in the face and said, I don't care how big I am, you know, here, here I am. And um, so, you know, just the athlete and the quickness to everything um, it, and, the, and the pure stuff, 
you know, was, and again, he had to sort of calm himself down and, you know, the strikes um, and, and learn to be more of a pitcher than a thrower, you know, but it was the, just the pure stuff was really good. And I thought he had, I thought he had really, he'd gone to the Cape the summer before and sort of learned to start slowing everything down. And Brownie had done a good job with him at Vanderbilt that next year, you know, being a starter and slowing everything down. And, you know, with us, I mean, the stuff was still there. He walked a few too many, but if you, it looks like he hadn't walked a ton, you know, in Colorado. So I'm proud for him that, you know, he sort of figured that out. Yeah, you mentioned the undersized right-hander. It's a profile that in the past teams have shied away from that's starting to fall by the wayside a little bit. In Jordan's case, as you mentioned, he did struggle with his control in the minors, five and a half walks per nine, but he also showed the ability to miss bats uh, over 10 strikeouts per nine. How much did you kind of follow and track what he was doing and just kind of keep tabs on how his career was progressing? We get those uh, minor league game reports, you know, every day. So you would be able to follow the starts and that kind of thing. And um, so I was able to sort of follow it all along and just sort of see how he was doing. And, and uh, again, he's a sharp kid. And, you know, I don't know. Versus years ago, you know, we – we want success in a microwave now. We want it right now. And sometimes it just takes these guys a little bit longer, you know, to figure it out or figure out their body or figure out, you know, something in their delivery that maybe slows them down, lets their arm catch up, you know, whatever. And we want it now. And sometimes it just takes these guys a little bit of time. So, you know, hopefully, obviously, you know, you'd like both of those guys with the Dodgers, but, you know, hopefully Sheffield's figured it out and and figured out what works for his body and body type and you know the adrenaline. I mean, he's he's got a lot of adrenaline and a lot of energy and he wants to come at you and it's very aggressive, you know. And he might just have to learn to, you know, turn that down just a little bit, you know, to get those strikes. You mentioned that adrenaline and that aggressiveness. We saw. The end of 2018, the Dodgers started moving him into more of a bullpen role. He pitched exclusively in relief in the Arizona Fall League. And I remember that was when some things really started to tick up for him. Pitched pretty much exclusively in relief the next year as well. And ultimately now is in the bullpen for Colorado. Was there a sense when you saw him that, hey, obviously you think he can start, but if something goes by the wayside, there's enough stuff here to be an effective reliever? Is that kind of a fallback that enters your mind at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know... Again, he had started at Vanderbilt, you know, that junior year, and the strike throwing and command was better. So you thought he was on the uptick, you know, with that. And then, but you're right, like, if if he can't start, then who knows, you know, once you put him in the bullpen, he only got to throw one inning, what kind of fastball you might get. And, and the stuff is there, you know, to be a back-end type bullpen guy. So, you know, we were hoping, and who knows, you know, once he starts getting comfortable, maybe he goes back to a starters type role. Um, but yeah, that was like, okay, let's start him. Let's see how it happens, what happens. And then if not, you know, we can always dump him in the back end and let him go at you with the power stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, so far uh, in Colorado, the fastball's been averaging 96. A slider's been playing well. That change up the few times he's thrown it has played well, too. So clearly things are working out for him. He has yet to allow a run in six appearances. How much have you been able to watch him and Zach and their outings live? And I, I, I saw Pop, um, I think it was some kind of Twitter deal. You know, UK might have sent it out um, on some pitches that he threw. And I, th- I saw just a brief little highlight or something of, of Sheffield. So, When you see two of your guys get taken in the Rule 5 draft, what is that like? Is there any extra emotion there in any way? <laughs> I mean, it bums you out, right? You know, um, again, part of the problem is these guys have done a good job, such a good job with scouting and player development that we've got so many good players that guys like that, you know, I mean, Pop, I think because uh, Pop was the, was the trade for Manny, but, but with Sheffield, it was like, well, you know, I mean, we just got so many guys and I, I trust the evaluation of what we have in the system that they had to, leave him you know out there to be selected so it, you know it bumps you out some you know I was, it was bummed out when Rayleigh got traded to the twins you know um, you bummed out when you know I've had a few of them I mean uh, Bannon and Ray uh, Bannon and Pop both in that Machado deal um, Brian Morris was in uh, that deal when we ended up getting Manny Ramirez but but you look at it and you go, okay, Manny Ramirez and Manny Machado, you know, it's some pretty good players that we ended up getting back for them. So clearly, you know, value to the organization comes in many different forms. Right. Right. Marty, obviously scouting is a big part of your life and you've been doing it for a very, very long time, but there are things that are bigger than baseball and beyond just your role as a scout, you're on the board of directors uh, for a nonprofit organization called Refuge for Women. Tell us a little bit about this organization and the work that it does and, and some of what you do. I appreciate being able to talk about this. It, it is. It's a, a passion of mine. Um, Refuge for Women started in Kentucky. It's a shelter that's, uh, these girls can stay up to a year long in a long-term shelter. Um, to try to escape human trafficking and sexual exploitation. And it started in Kentucky and it's grown from long-term houses. Now we have transitional living houses after the long-term. We've got an emergency house here in Kentucky as long as, as well as we're gonna have one in Pittsburgh. We've got locations, we've got here in Kentucky, we've got Chicago, we've got North Texas, we've got South Texas, we've got Las Vegas. Um, They got me on involved with initially because of the location in Southern Cal that we just opened up in March. Um, And then we're going to have that emergency house in Pittsburgh. So, I mean, it's a, uh, it's, it's a way for these girls to, that have been in horrible situations and be able to, you know, like the long term, they're able to stay for 12 months. Um, Everything's taken care of them from, you know, obviously food, shelter, but, you know, doctor, dental, um, therapy, counseling, all that kind of stuff. Then, you know, hopefully they'll move into the transitional living where they can stay another year, which again, helps them get their feet on the, on the ground and, 
and they're working through these processes, you know, work, working jobs through these processes. Um, and then we've also started a, a uh, social enterprise called Survivor Made that they're able to make candles and leather goods and, and these kind of things. So they're being able, they're, we're employing them. Um, just the self-confidence, the, the uh, self-worth, um, job skills, working with other people, all those kind of things. And it's really been neat to see um, some of the cases or some of these girls, what they've come out of and what they're now where they're at. Um, it's been, uh, you know, a blessing to me to be able to work with it and then just to see just uh, the courage and tenacity and uh, of some of these girls that go through the program. And I mean, they've been in really rough spots. We had a girl that came through the Kentucky location a few years ago and it, Kyle, in your wildest imagination could not have come up with what she had gone through. I mean, from, you know, mom introduced her to porn at five to, um, alcohol, drugs, uh, rehab, overdose, mom dying, boyfriend dying, porn industry, working in the porn industry. She ended up coming to the facility in Kentucky, went through the program, ended up going to Asbury Seminary, um, got her degree, and is now married and, and has had uh, twins just recently. And it's like, wow, you know, what a story. And she ended up writing a book about the whole thing. And there's just a lot of different um, stories like that of, of these girls that have been in rough situations. And, and, and this is a soft landing spot for them that, you know, they can feel comfortable and, and that they can grow and, and get back into a normal living situation in society. So. Yeah, absolutely. I know in the baseball world, a lot of times you get so focused in on what's happening on the field and players and tools, but at the end of the day, it's a game. There's much bigger, more important things out there. And this organization is definitely helping people. How did you first get involved in the organization? Um, let me throw this out just in case. So it's refugeforwomen.org and people can learn more about it that way. Refugeforwomen.org. Um, my buddy who had who's the owner, founder, president, he and his wife had started 11 years ago now. He had come to me, he and I were friends, and um, I knew what he did, didn't totally, totally get it, you know? And so he asked me to lunch one time and just sort of said, hey, what kind of volunteer or, you know, uh, type things are you doing right now? Are you looking for anything? And, and so we sort of started talking through that. And I think his his initial deal was we want to open this location in Southern Cal and because of the Dodgers and me being, you know, connections maybe out there or working out there. Um, and that's how sort of that started. And then, um, so I started helping them out there and then, um, then they ended up putting me on the national uh, board as well. So now I serve on the advisory board for Southern Cal as well as the national board you know, that oversees all the different locations. So it's pretty, it's been, uh, it's amazing work that they do and all the volunteers and workers and, and everybody that's involved is, is done, do a great job. And, uh, you know, these girls just need to be loved a little bit, you know, and, and show them their worth and show them um, that there's more out there than what 
what potentially they'd seen in the past. Absolutely. Where can people go to help in any way they can? If you go to the refugeforwomen.org, um, you know, there's a list of all the different locations. It gives the whole history and everything about it. And then also on there, um, you'll see a link for Survivor Made, and that's the social enterprise, and that's where they bit. It's amazing, man. These girls, you know, they started the candles and this and that, and then North Texas, not to be, you know, outdone, they, you know, typical Texas, they said, well, we're going to start making leather goods. So they started doing these earrings. Well, they had an old cowboy named Eli uh, that lived by him that built saddles. Well, he ends up making them a, a pattern and shows them how to make these purses. So they get this big industrial sewing machine and he shows them how to start making these purses. And I mean, they're beautiful purses. So Kentucky, again, not to be outdone, we're like, well, shoot, we got to get into this purse making business also. So um, over the winter in January, I had done some research and different things and figured out what sewing machine and all that kind of stuff. So we started it in January with uh, the tote bags and, and, and uh, it's amazing, man. These girls are, are really sharp with that stuff. And, you know, you see them first get on the sewing machine and, you know, they're not very confident and they're scared to death that they, you know, may break something or whatever. And now they're whipping through those bags and, and uh, it, it's some, it's some, uh, the work that they've done is really, you know, good looking purses and tote bags and journal covers. And, and they're coming up with different ideas, you know, hey, we're going to make a wallet and, and just to see sort of the creativity, you know, of how, how we can design different things and design a, a wallet or just different things that they've come up with and uh it's neat to see and it, you know just that confidence and self-worth that comes out in them and look I, i'm creating this i'm making this i'm making money for myself now and and uh, it's pretty cool so absolutely and once again that's refuge for women www.refugeforwomen.org it's a non-profit organization that houses and shelters women across the country and help them escape human trafficking and sexual exploitation. So obviously a very, very worthy cause. And Marty, we appreciate you letting us know about them and also talking about these players and just all the experiences you've had. You bet, Kyle. I appreciate you having me on. Once again, folks, that was Marty Lamb, the Dodgers area scout covering Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And really just an awesome, awesome scout with some tremendous stories and very, very generous of him to come on and provide some insight into kind of what he's seen and some of his philosophies and also talk about some of the influences who shaped him as well as the work he does with Refuge for Women. Again, I highly encourage everyone to check out the organization. That's Refuge for Women, www.refugeforwomen.org. You can donate, you can buy some of their products and it all goes to a very good cause. Uh, This has been another edition of the Baseball America Scout Series podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening. I would love to hear from you. Once again, thank you to Marty Lamb for joining us. For Marty, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. After the end of a good fight, 
You deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.